Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. A big thanks to our sponsors, Purse.io, Brave.com, and eToro.com. You can also find new Let's Talk Bitcoin discussions featured on Coindesk.com every Sunday morning, as well as the channels and RSS feeds you're probably used to. But whether this is your first episode or you've been with us since the days of empty Gox, welcome to the show. So if there's one thing that we know, it's that while cryptocurrencies can be private and even anonymous under certain conditions, true privacy, which can't be broken through network analysis, has been pretty hard to find. And it's no wonder that this is so tough, as the big innovation introduced by the technology, or at least one of them, involves multiple people knowing the network's truths, along with every single step and transfer that it took to eventually get there. With that sort of literally complete history, we've seen many companies try to build businesses peeling back that onion for regulatory compliance, law enforcement, or other interested parties. By now, we've seen multiple generations of coins that's focused specifically on this kind of privacy angle. But one which we've discussed here before is the Mimblewimble protocol, now live with a few implementation differences on both the Grin and Beam blockchains. Recently, an article came out which claimed to find a new way to de-anonymize the supposedly anonymous currency. It seems like a good opportunity not just to explore what this specific case is, but why it's so hard in general to do true privacy on a blockchain. Andreas, can you explain in brief terms for us what the attack vector is that was identified here? In simple terms, there's two aspects to privacy on a Mimblewimble-like system. One, which is the most well-known, is that the output amounts are encrypted. So it uses Peterson commits which are elliptic curve functions in order to encrypt the value of each output in a transaction, which is kind of like confidential transactions system proposed for Bitcoin. These are basically zero-knowledge proofs that are used to hide how much is being spent. And the reason that's important is because that's one of the main ways you break the other form of privacy, which is a coin join. And the easiest way to break a coin join is by analyzing the spending amounts and doing statistical correlation, which is why CoinJoin on its own is hard and easy to break. So Mimblewimble-like systems use both. They use a mechanism of mixing transactions together. So in standard implementation, all of the transactions in a block participate in a form of signature or transaction aggregation that is a bit like a CoinJoin. So you can't tell who's paying who because everybody in the block is paying everybody in the block and all of the amounts are encrypted. These systems are pseudonymous, meaning that there's no driver's license photo attached to your transaction, but there is a uniquely identifiable address that is attached from which you're spending or to which you're spending. And if you do enough transactions over time, and some of those transactions become de-anonymized because they touch somebody who is collecting driver license photos, then someone can easily do statistical analysis to say, oh, well, in this transaction, two of these addresses were sending, and we know one of these addresses is Stephanie, so therefore we can assume with a fair degree of certainty that the other address is also Stephanie. So this is de-anonymization. So you've got the anonymity set, which is the addresses, but it's fairly easy to do statistical correlation if some of those addresses are de-anonymized. So the way to solve that is to not do transaction where you're the only participant. Because if a transaction involves multiple participants, then the inputs that are coming from multiple participants and the outputs that are going to multiple participants 
make it impossible or very difficult to do that kind of statistical analysis. What you hope for in this game of security is usually there's like a way to de-anonymize things like this, but you don't want to make it easy for anybody who might want to find out. There are very few absolutes here. This is about cost, effort, and probability of success or degree of knowledge. So how much will it cost? How much time and effort will it take? And at the end of it, how probabilistically accurate is your result? Can you say, after spending $1,000 by doing this and that, I can say with a 99% probability that these two addresses belong to Stephanie. That gets a lot worse if you say, well, for a million dollars, after three years of work, I can say with 30% probability that one of these 100 addresses might possibly belong to Stephanie. What you want to do is you want to push it to where it's expensive, time-consuming, and the results you get are vague. CoinJoin is obviously the primary technique for fixing this. When you have a public ledger and you have pseudonymous addresses, the way to fix de-anonymization is to mix everybody's transactions together so that it's very difficult to see who is paying who. CoinJoin can be broken, however, fairly trivially because the amounts are very revealing. So if I go and buy something from a store that's $19.99 at an exchange rate at the moment I bought it of whatever it was at that moment, I'm going to get a payment price for that widget t-shirt that I bought, which may even have six digits of precision after the decimal point. So I'm paying 0.03-17314 Bitcoin for this. That's bad because that's a very specific number. And you can assume that depending on what I put in, my change would be whatever I put in minus that amount, which would also give me six degrees of precision. These kinds of numbers are very easy to do correlation on. You can say, well, it looks like this output matches this input. Even if I have a coin join with 100 people going in and 100 payments going out, I can kind of match inputs and outputs simply by looking at the amounts. And for that, we do confidential transactions, which is basically we encrypt the amounts. So now what you see is 100 inputs that are encrypted. They're not numbers anymore. They're banana, orange, walnut, asparagus. And on the other end, coming out of it is lemon, grapefruit, kiwi. And now you have no way to attach any knowledge to that. That's confidential transactions or various other zero-knowledge proofs that encrypt the value. One of the things about blockchains that seems like it goes against this idea of true privacy is the fact that all of this information is recorded and needs to be able to be rationalized back to sort of the start of the system. How does something like confidential transactions obscure that data so that it can't be used to make these connections, but at the same time, it still works as a public open blockchain? The idea of a zero-knowledge proof is that you should be able to prove something without gaining any knowledge about what you proved. Okay, I'm looking at this transaction. On the left side, it's apples, oranges, and kiwis. And on the right side, it's bananas, grapefruits, and lemons. Now, in order to prove that this is a valid transaction, I don't need to know what these things are exactly. But what I do need to know, apples plus oranges plus kiwis equals bananas plus grapefruit plus lemon on the other side, meaning that inputs and outputs add up. Or if you take the outputs out of the inputs, you should come up with a number that is greater than zero. 
For the purposes of the network, the thing that it cares about is that at the end of it, it all rationalizes out. But the internal knowledge, so long as you eventually get from here to there, doesn't particularly matter to the validity of the system? Yes. For a verify, you want to see that no new coins were introduced that didn't exist, an inflation attack, and someone didn't spend money they didn't have. But as long as the double entry bookkeeping works, meaning that the number of debits and the number of credits add up to zero or they add up to fees, you know, the leftover, which goes to transaction fees, you don't care. So from a verifiability perspective, you don't need to know the amounts. All you need to know is that they add up correctly. You need to make two fruit salads that fit in the same bowl, but they're made of different exactly. fruits and no one can unscramble them. To really stretch the metaphor, exactly. You're basically weighing the fruit bowls without being able to figure out what is in them. The beauty of that is this can be done with a series of mathematical tricks that fall into the general category of zero-knowledge proofs. The particular type of trick is called a range proof, because what you're trying to show is that after you've done the subtraction of inputs minus outputs, the number that results, which is encrypted, is in a range. You don't know where in that range it is, but it is in a range. And of course, the range needs to be greater than zero. That's it. As long as you can prove that it's in the range of greater than zero, that means that there's enough inputs to satisfy the outputs in that transaction, nothing new has been created, and therefore it is a valid payment. In confidential transactions, there is a type of wrench proof called a bulletproof, which is the latest incarnation. It's a great way of doing this in a very compact way. Different protocols use different ways of doing this. And honestly, if you asked me to explain the math, I would have to reread all of the papers and I would still understand only about 30% of it, not my strong point. That actually is an interesting point unto itself. Blockchains themselves as a structure are complex, but compared to what you see in these type of solutions that are trying to further obfuscate that data, it seems like this is a whole other level of complexity, really. When you first encounter cryptography, it appears magical that you can do these things with numbers. That's part of the fascination, but it's also one of the difficult things about this space because very few people can actually do the work. And guess what? We've got all of them in cryptocurrencies now. Essentially, the vast majority of the world's best cryptographers are working on blockchain technology right now. And the reason is we monetize the science of cryptography by cryptographically securing the system of money. I'm less concerned with is Mimblewimble or an implementation of it cryptographically perfect to a fidelity that is beyond something that I would care about, or how much money would it take to de-anonymize me? Anonymity isn't a Boolean. That's perfect anonymity. It's sort of a how much money does it cost for this adversarial tit to be tatted back at me? Julian Assange wrote a great paper where he said that the push for privacy at the citizen level should be understood economically. And so the numbers have gone even lower because in five years, storage costs have gone down even further. But back when he gave this paper talk, he said that the price of indefinitely storing every piece of data that you produce, including your phone and your Alexa passively recording you, is about $1.50 a day. So to think that the US government wouldn't just spend $600 million doing that is absurd. Where we need to go with freedom is to think about it in terms of how do we get the price parity of surveillance back to what it was in 1970? And in 1970, the price of totalitarian surveillance was two to $4,000 per day because it was a person with a truck or a person listening on your phone full time to listen to when you're talking or not. So what the average person thinks of when they hear privacy or they hear anonymity 
they shouldn't necessarily be searching for that perfect, this will never be broken, I'm beyond reproach, but it's a, how in my life can I get back to increasing the cost of surveillance upon me from $1.50 a day to $50 a day to $100 a day to a couple thousand dollars a day worth of active surveillance cost in order to be surveilled. The only thing is there's a difference between talking on the phone or not in the 1970s and the blockchain, which is that the blockchain is forever. Even if some data is on there and it's inaccessible at the moment for a cheap price or for an attainable sum, it could become so in the future as technology improves. So we always have to remember that the blockchain lasts forever, whereas a phone conversation back in the day might have been lost in time on your rotary phone. You're spot on because just for simply using encrypted traffic or a VPN, the government just stores that data longer. Forever. Until they can break it. But that brings up the point, do we just give up? Is it just futile, you know, to try to get privacy? (laughs) Why not? Why not, Andres? First of all, I think it's important to realize how far we've come, both in terms of how bad things have gotten since the 70s, with not just the cost of storing data, but also in financial terms, the gradual reduction in the use of cash, which of course was much more difficult to surveil. But at the same time, over the last 10 years, we've poked a giant hole in this plan of totalitarian financial surveillance with these tools. Sure, it takes whatever cost to run these nodes, but That doesn't count the cost of training the researchers, the technical knowledge, building the research, figuring out how to do it, and executing on this attack. And then doing it again in three weeks because the protocols changed. And then doing it again because someone invented Mimblewimble. And then doing it again and again and again and again. If we keep moving with the technology forward fast enough and introducing all of these new technologies that need to be analyzed and decrypted and tracked on the network and et cetera, et cetera, it becomes a hell of a lot more difficult to do that. Yes, the blockchain is forever, but the idea that all network traffic is forever is not such a simple proposition. Yes, you could track what your phone is recording and the emails you send, et cetera, but the ability of a government, and certainly not any government, to simply capture all of the internet's traffic, even very ephemeral traffic, forever, that has a much higher cost. We're talking about a lot more traffic that doesn't actually involve surveilling an individual citizen, but you would need in order to reconstruct these types of attacks if you hadn't already started. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you in part by eToro. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with low spreads, no commission, and no hidden fees. eToro has spent more than 10 years making sophisticated trading features simple to use on any device with their intuitive app. If you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. Create an account today at eToro.ltbshow.com. That's eToro.ltbshow.com. Most internet browsers act like a vacuum cleaner for your data. You never know where this data will end up or which election it might impact. Brave Browser is different. Brave stands for authentic privacy. 
and it gives you back control over who has access to your online activity. Brave has a novel mechanism for transferring value between users, advertisers, and creators, and it ensures that you only see ads that you opt in to view. You get rewarded for your attention, so you can support your favorite content creators with those rewards. So when you use Brave, you don't need to participate in the hoovering up of your personal data. Experience a better internet. Join over 8 million monthly active users and over 300,000 verified content creators. Go to brave.com LTB and switch to Brave today. That's brave.com LTB. Brave.com LTB and switch today. It's interesting to think about privacy and anonymity in two different ways. One is a passive filter, and the other is when you're a directed target. So for instance, you lock your door at your home, not because the $0 rock in your garden couldn't be used to break a window to get in, but because if the door's unlocked, a thief's going to go checking the locks and they're just going to choose the house that's unlocked. So even a small amount of security is better than nothing. When they start dredging the blockchain ecosystem, look at the ICOs. The ones that were flagrant crimes are the ones that have been going to jail. It's sort of like trying to get yourself in the bell curve relative to other people higher. But when you're talking about directional or direct security, where you specifically are a named target, Michael Perklin, who is the security officer at Shapeshift, did this amazing DevCon talk about how to secure cryptographically the contents of your laptop. And he didn't define the conversation about perfect cryptography. He said the average investigator has a $200,000 budget for evidence research. And so all you need to do is apply just enough friction to the ability to recomposite the file directories and the folders and documents that you have on your data such that it's 300000 or 250000 then he's going to run out his budget and then ask for approval for an increase for OT. And then it's going to have to go to his boss's boss to then approve it. And 95% of the time, unless they really, really want you, they don't get the reapproval. So directional privacy and anonymity in the United States, at least, is about $200,000 worth of uh, economic cryptographic privacy. But if you're Julian Assange, then it's worth burning down the rule of law in the G7 just to get you. So that's a whole different budget there. You're willing to basically piss on the constitution of seven different countries just to get one person. And that's not the point, because the ability to resist that is social and political, not technological. You resist that by putting constraints on the behavior of government. You don't resist that by technologically becoming an adversary that can take on a superpower, because there is no such ability. For most people, that's not the issue. The issue is, can you achieve a level of privacy that is better than the one you have today? And certainly we can do that better than the privacy I get from Chase Bank or Visa. But at the same time, how hard is it to break that privacy? There are three articles that will be linked in the show notes. First, there's the original article exposing this by Dragonfly Research, published to Medium, that's called Breaking Mimblewimble's Privacy Model. And then we'll also be sharing a link to the developer rebuttal from Rin on the inaccuracies as they see it in the attacks. And then a second deployment of Mimblewimble is active now on Beam, and they made a separate post explaining why the attack would not work in the same way on Beam if it worked at all. 
TLDR for the attack article, Mimblewimble's privacy is fundamentally flawed using only $60 per week of Amazon Web Services spend. This researcher was able to uncover the exact addresses of senders and recipients for 96% of Grin transactions in real time. There's one part that really jumped out at me. This attack seems to be about creating super nodes or nodes that are very, very well connected within the network. This is a problem with any peer-to-peer network-based system where it is possible to do a Sybil attack. And a Sybil attack is where you create participants in the network that are all driven by a central puppeteer, if you like, sock puppet nodes. The way we solve that in Bitcoin, the way we ensure that one CPU, one vote worked instead of one node, one vote, is by requiring each of the nodes to do proof of work, which you can't fake. So you can't just build up thousands of fake nodes for the mining part. But in terms of participating in the propagation of transactions and blocks, you can create thousands of nodes very, very cheaply on a platform like Amazon. And then you can saturate the network in such a way that when honest nodes are trying to find peers to connect to, they're going to stumble across one of your sock pocket nodes. And that means that they're going to connect to them. It's a bit like the Stasi model. Three out of four of all of your neighbors are snitches. And if that happens, when you're talking to these nodes, they can monitor things that are happening from your node. If you're using a flood protocol or gossip protocol where your node tells all other nodes about the transactions that it sees, then a careful sprinkling of these spy nodes in the network will be able to see where a transaction was first seen, which is a known problem in Bitcoin and every other peer-to-peer network-based blockchain. And we'll be able to then do statistical analysis, almost like triangulating a signal in network terms back to its origin in order to see. Now, the other thing is, we talked about this coin join mechanism that's used in Mimblewimble on a block basis. The fundamental of this attack is that if you see the transactions before they get aggregated in the block, while they're in transit to one of the miners, then you can basically de-anonymize the coin join anonymity set and figure out exactly which UTXO is being sent by whom. All of these systems seem like they're most useful when there's lots of people doing lots of things within them, and there are a few people who are spending a lot of resources to watch them, at least relative to the amount of overall activity that's going on. This attack, with a single node, increased the amount of other nodes it would connect to from the default 8 up to eventually 200, apparently. That was how it was able to get such a broad swath of surveillance. But you're right, this could also be done with multiple nodes all doing basically the same thing. And that's what companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic and all of the other surveillance companies in the blockchain space are doing, among other things. They have nodes that connect to honest nodes in the network, and their purpose is to spy on transactions coming out of those honest nodes. This takes us back to the start of the story. Isn't this just an inherent problem with blockchains and the nature of the way that they need to replicate data and be available to people to join without you know, registering on a list? It seems like the inherent pseudonymity of these systems actually makes it very difficult to avoid these types of ways that people are breaking anonymity. Not really. And that's one of the problems I have with this article is the use of words like inherent and fundamentally broken and things like that, which imply absolutes. This is very much an arms race, and privacy is very much a moving target. This is great research in that it's identified an easy way to undermine 
a big investment of privacy that is fixable, however. And it's fixable with a number of different techniques that can be overlaid on top of the existing network. One that is identified by the author, which was not a sufficient deterrent or a sufficient countermeasure, but is one of the ways we avoid this kind of network surveillance, is a technique called dandelion. We've talked about this before. The technique where instead of broadcasting to all of the nodes that you're directly connected to, instead you onion route an encrypted packet several hops through the network, which is called a stem phase. And when it arrives at some destination, it then broadcasts out or floods out from there, which is called the fluff phase of the dandelion. The idea here is that you see the transaction being flooded from a specific node, but that's not the node it actually came from. Instead, it came from a node further down the stem that is not directly visible. And again, that can be thwarted with sufficient penetration of spy nodes. There are more sophisticated techniques. For example, when you work on a second layer network like the Lightning Network, everything is onion routed. And so every participant only knows their immediate peers. There's another interesting thing that happens in something like the Lightning Network which really starts to address the Sybil attack aspect. So let me ask a quiz question here. How do we stop nodes from pretending to be honest when they're not, in fact, honest? How do we stop Sybil attacks? Anyone want to take a guess? Well, bonding of some form. I mean, proof of work is a form of bonding. Exactly. So proof of work. You have to have something at stake. Proof of work is an energy mechanism of staking. But you could also have monetary staking. So you could say, I will let you talk to me as a peer, but I want you to first deposit some money so that I can see that you're serious. Now, what that does, it requires the hosts to have some participation beyond just a network connection in the network. But the other thing it does indirectly is it fundamentally changes the asymmetric cost of this attack. Because to start one node, if the stake is high enough, is not that expensive. But to start a thousand nodes, if the stake is high enough, suddenly becomes quite expensive. We have to start thinking about these game theoretical models of security that are based on providing some kind of stake and use them more broadly. In Bitcoin, one of the interesting things that happens, and the same thing applies in Mimblewimble too, is that to run a node involves no stake whatsoever. There's no reward, but there's also no risk. You don't stake anything to run a node. Now, this has changed with Lightning. One of the interesting things about the privacy model in Lightning is, yes, you have this onion routing with all of these encrypted packets going around, and you don't know who the sender or recipient are. You just pass one layer of the onion deep, and you don't know how deep the onion goes. But in order to participate in the onion routing system, and this is key, you have to have a channel. And in order to have a channel, you have to put money down with your peer in a multisig. That's what a channel is. So I've said this before, but Lightning Network is, in some ways, a proof-of-stake system that's an overlay to Bitcoin's proof-of-work and other blockchains because it requires you to put money down that you put in a channel, and then you can earn fees based on your validation of the rules. That sounds like a proof-of-stake system to me. But the side effect of this, which is really interesting, is that it makes it much harder to launch a Sybil attack because it escalates your costs. These problems are not fundamentally insurmountable. What they are are opportunities to see how we evolve the privacy and security of these networks by adopting many more of these techniques 
to make it harder, more expensive, more time-consuming, and ultimately less fruitful to do this kind of spying. The other thing that bonding does is it explicitly changes the relationship for passive drudging into directional. Because if you have to collateralize and allocate a discrete amount per channel that you're surveilling, then you're breaking that dollar per person passive surveillance number into a $60 or a $50. And then it really becomes a, do we want to spend $8 billion on this or $100 million for the passive surveillance type problem? It's really cool to learn the tech and to think through it, but then fundamentally understand that adversarial relationships are economic in nature and then try to think through what's the level of adversarial security I wish to have and is this number appropriate for that use case. And the cool thing that bonding does is it makes explicit an increase in that mechanism that doesn't require a zero-knowledge-proof Nobel Prize-level math problem to be solved. One of the interesting things to me about this article is that this was an attack that had been thought of before. There's actually been a decent amount of commentary and thinking that's been done about it. And really what happened here is that this was the first sort of in-practice version where they then published all of the data and sort of all the software behind it. There are a lot of people who are interested in cryptocurrency, and then there's a much smaller subset of people who are developing with cryptocurrency, and then there's a much smaller subset who are interested in core cryptocurrency underlying software, and then there's a much smaller group of that who actually have any sort of reasonable insight into the overall protocol level stuff. How much of what we're seeing across various blockchains is really security through obscurity versus actual built-in security? And is it possible to have true security or is obscurity kind of the best that we can hope for in these systems? It's not security through obscurity because we're talking about some cryptographic fundamentals here that have real power when they're deployed and used correctly. But at the same time, we're in the very early stages of this technology, and things are very rapidly evolving. And just as you said, there's a smaller group within a smaller group within a smaller group of the experts, specialists, researchers, cryptographers, mathematicians, etc., who are building this stuff. Don't forget that there's a larger group within a larger group within a larger group, which is all of the people the NSA hires, which number in the several orders of magnitude more (laughs) than any of the researchers in the cryptography space. But the difference here is between what can be efficiently and effectively cracked by a superpower state-level actor targeting you specifically versus what can be efficiently and effectively cracked by the middle manager IT people at the government of Myanmar trying to surveil 10 million people simultaneously. We don't need to do the first in order to fundamentally change the world by stopping the second. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. A big thanks to our sponsors, Brave.com and eToro.com. Today's discussion featured Adam B. Levine, Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Jonathan Mohan. This episode was edited by Jonas, with music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at ltbshow.com. <laughs>